good morning, everyone. Well, that was an interesting new opening. Ah, memo to self. Check timing when one checks briefings. Anyway, this morning we have a very intriguing show, and the timing could not be better because we're going to be talking tonight about spying, among other things, mainly uh, psychic spying. And this is kind of an interesting program to a backdrop, which was kind of tailor-made for this uh, program, which, as you know, was uh, delayed because of uh, rain from last week. Uh, Let me tell you who are new to the show how to go to a section we call Radio with Pictures, where we have links and images and all that to provide during the show kind of background items that we discuss uh, on the air. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. And you'll see tonight a very interesting banner, which was made up by one of our uh, uh, guests tonight. It's called Ghost Warrior, features prominently the name Targ, Williams, and Womack. Click on that. That takes you to tonight's guest page. And right under the guest page where it says to listen to the show, you'll see fast links to items in white. And you'll see my name, Russell Targ's name, Jonathan's name, and Lori Williams' name. Click on my name. That takes you to that section of the page which we call Radio with Pictures, the first five items are kind of a sequential description of this very, very bizarre story, which uh, came to us courtesy, we believe, of China, having to do with a balloon, a reconnaissance uh, spying balloon, which uh, left China, drifted across the North Pacific, across the... um, Uh, Aleutian Islands, and then down across Canada, entered the United States by way of Idaho, crossed over into Montana, and has been the focus of a tremendous amount of public discussion and news coverage and network broadcasts and web coverage and magazines and newspapers and all the mainstream press looking at all of this like, what in the world is going on? And I want to go into this tonight a little bit because it's the background to our conversation with perchance the most preeminent of the remote viewers on planet Earth. What do I mean by remote viewers? Well, let me kind of give you a background sketch here. Our primary guest tonight is Russell Targ, who was a physicist and an author and a pioneer in the development of laser and laser applications and a co-founder at the Stanford Research Institute, better known as SRI, of its investigation into psychic abilities of human beings back in the 1970s and 1980s. SRI is a research and development think tank in Menlo Park, California, which is just kind of south of San Francisco. Um, Called Remote Viewing, this work in the psychic area has been published in Nature, the Proceedings of the Institute for Electronic and Electrical Engineers, and the Proceedings of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Targ has a bachelor's degree in physics from Queens College and did graduate work in physics at Columbia University. He received two National Aeronautics and Space Administration awards for inventions and contributions to lasers and laser communications. In the 1980s, in the early 80s, in 83 and 84, he accepted invitations to present remote viewing demonstrations and address the USSR 
Academy of Science on his research. He is the author of nine books dealing with <clears throat> the scientific investigation of psychic abilities and Buddhist approaches to the transformation of consciousness, including Mind Reach, Scientists Look at Psychic Abilities, Miracles of the Mind, Exploring Non-Local Consciousness and Spiritual Healing, Limitless Mind, A Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness, his autobiography, which is Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker, that was done back in 2008, and his current book is The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. Um, in addition, we'll be joined, as you know, by uh, Jonathan Womack. John um, has been an experiencer in the phenomenon of leaving your body, out-of-body experiences, uh, and he's also done a great deal of work in the remote viewing area, and you might want to consult the detailed bio <clears throat> sorry, the detailed biographies of our guests tonight, which are on the other side of midnight webpage. And last but not least, we have with us Lori Lori Williams, who um, well, Lori has been involved in remote viewing since uh, back in 1997, and she is uh, CEO of a major. Uh, she's taught rather CEOs of major corporations, celebrities. Was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. She's spoken with archaeologists, scientists, physicians, stay-at-home moms and dads, as well as hundreds of students from all walks of life. And as a remote viewer, she says, I work both nationally and internationally with individuals, corporations, archaeologists, law enforcement, and many more. And you can read through her website, which is listed there uh, under her bio there under Lori Williams, and you'll see many interesting additional background sets of information. And without further ado, let me introduce Russell. Russell Targ, it is so great to finally talk to you on the other side of midnight. I'm very happy to be with you during these exciting times. What I want to do is I want to kind of meander around your life in the next uh, couple, three hours. I want to talk about the Chinese right first and foremost, because it seems to me this is a project tailor-made for the science of remote viewing, given that there is such interesting, contradictory, and frankly, probably disinformational information available from public sources on the web all around the world. What in the world were or are the Chinese up to, and why have they screwed up so incredibly badly to so many people in such a highly visible way? And have you tried to remote view either their intentions, their technology, or both in this current incident? I haven't done anything psychic concerning them. All I've done is read the New York Times, and I've been reading that for the past 60 years, so I do have some idea what they might be doing. I think China has done this as a piece of theater to get ready to invade hot Taiwan. I think, they, I think that they don't give a damn about what's going on in the middle of the United States. They've taken tons of pictures of that with their satellites. I think this is an experiment 
does they take their giant balloon, fly it out here, and they want to see what will the United States do if China comes and gives us a good slap of the face. And they discovered that they can slap us in the face day after day, and America will do nothing. And I think that really looks very bad for the future of Taiwan. Hmm. Okay, you'll understand there are different points of view on this. For instance, there's a school of thought that says we obviously saw this coming, you know, a thousand more miles away. And because of information which is not in the general public, we decided to let it proceed to try to figure out what were they doing. And most of all, because by allowing it to drift over the continent of the United States, we had direct access to it literally communicating by means of satellite back to whatever home base launched it, the uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and we could get incredible access to codes, to digital coding techniques, to their communications capabilities, the power sources of this balloon technology, and then ultimately when we downed it uh, precisely seven miles off the Carolina coast in a mere 47 feet of water this afternoon, We're going to bring up the remains of it and obviously do a deep, pun intended, deep dive into the forensics of all the technology that we will recover. And so I would argue that by allowing it to do what it did, which was basically nothing because its uh, transmissions could be easily blocked by current state-of-the-art countermeasures here, we did find out something about their capabilities and their efforts to communicate two-way, and that might have been the reason for us allowing it to track slowly over a week on the jet stream across the country in the first place. Yeah, I'm here. I was getting an an announcement on my... Anyway, I I understand what you're saying. I have no special information, no psychic information, but I would think that it scares the hell out of scares the hell out of the people on Taiwan, seeing that China can do whatever they want to do with the United States, however humiliating it is. Uh, United States won't do anything. But that's only one perspective. I mean, don't you think that the Taiwanese, given they've lived under the guns of the Red Chinese for you know half a century or more, don't you think they're a little more sophisticated? They know the kind of games the Chinese have been playing. The Chinese have been bombarding Taiwan with propaganda assaults going back and forth across this invisible demarcation line with overflights, close flights, rocket tests, ballistic missile tests. I mean, there's been a whole mini war between Taiwan and the mainland, and no one has done anything because obviously they don't want to precipitate a, an actual hot war. One lone little balloon which got an incredible amount of public attention. By the way, you're aware that there was a second balloon that the Pentagon announced drifting over Latin America on Friday night, right? I've heard about that, yes. Well, this indicates a pattern. And it seems to me that if it's the Chinese and they're claiming the first one was an accident, which, of course, no one believes, the idea of having a second one similarly equipped, and we've seen no imagery no video, no ground reports of the second one. It just came from the Pentagon last night. 
it seems that obviously that knocks down the idea of some random act of nature, or as they said in their uh, press release, a force majeure. Interesting that the Chinese know French. Um, but in other words, I'm just wondering if this is not the front false Western town for something which at a higher level is much more interesting and the idea of letting it play out after we'd ascertained that this was not really a threat of any kind is to see what the Chinese are up to and what might happen next. And obviously, you know, for those folks that say, oh, it was a, you know, a test of a, an amph mission or, you know, a biological warfare, you don't have to test this stuff. We've been doing, bio, you know, balloon stuff on Earth for like 150 years. It's an incredible I think the test. I think China did it as a test of the United States resolve. Yeah, but that's not how you can view this. Just because we don't shoot something down doesn't mean we're not serious. You know, why shoot first and ask questions later as opposed to find out what they're up to? And then we did the appropriate thing when it was well, safe. The thing, that the thing that China is most interested in right now is what is the United States going to do as they start moving their ships around Taiwan? They've been doing that for the last year. And we've been very, very, shall we say, insistent that there's a, a line that we're not going to let them cross. And obviously, at this point, they have not crossed it. I think what China is looking far more to to see what we're going to do with Taiwan is what we're doing with Ukraine. Ukraine well, why really. Do you, why do you think they flew uh, the Zeppelin over America? I don't know. I think it was part of either it really was a military experiment that went radically awry because these things were technological. You communicate with them through satellite, you know, remote control. It was partially maneuverable because it did seem to hover in places and not be totally at the prey of the winds. Yeah, I don't think it's all it's at all a military experiment because it's just less information than the satellites. The thing uh, is, it's flying along uh, over our farm farmland and over some missile bases, but they don't learn anything new. Well, I, I would I, w- I would tend to agree with you that there are much better means for really gaining information going all the way back to when, you know, Eisenhower and the CIA and the Air Force collaborated on something called Project Corona, which was the first secret development of spy satellites with returning film from orbit and all that. And they have so many overflights for their satellites, both passive cameras, radar. You know, this balloon thing is totally useless. And for people who say that it was a unique means of gathering low altitude information. Do you know how many civil aviation aircraft are registered in the United States right now? Just in the U.S. Thousands. Millions. Millions. Each one of those can be chartered by a Chinese agent loaded with information and flown to any U.S. Air Force Base missile field. So why do you think our government keeps lying to us? Every day we have somebody with a chest full of ribbons saying what a big threat this is. Which which one? What, what threat? All, we, we, every day we have some new Air Force or Army general standing up saying that we've got to do something uh, because the balloons is such a big threat. Because it's all, know, it's, everyone knows that that's not true. Because I think it's all part of this multi-layered kabuki theater 
And that's why I strongly suspect that it was only the front for something much more interesting and we may never, depending upon, you know, the leaks, find out what the real reason, A, why it was flown, and B, why we apparently, until it was clear of the coast on the east, did nothing. Neither one of those do I believe at a surface level. I think this is a much deeper puzzle, and it's not bad timing that it happened now, just as Secretary Blinken was going to go and meet with the president of China for the first time in six years. It makes a very convenient way for both nations to not have that meeting in a very visible, for most people, easy to understand excuse, where in fact there may be things behind the scenes. Again, we're dealing with such limited controlled propaganda that making any sweeping assumptions based on what we think we know or what we're being fed, to me, is not, you know, very uh, uh, logical. Well, I have no more information uh, than anybody else. My opinion is that as China is skillfully doing this as an opportunity to test American resolve, why do you think they did it? I don't know. I did have an interesting thought earlier in the week that given that we've now established offices um, at the Pentagon and at NASA, literally dealing with UFOs and ETs, even regardless of what the propaganda is, the folks on the inside know that's what we're dealing with. We know there is at least one third party force with extraordinary, you know, almost godlike technology running around in our skies all over the world with complete impunity. And it occurred to me that maybe the balloon, or balloons, plural, was not from China at all, that that's the mutually agreed on by China and the U.S. excuse that, in fact, it was an ET spacecraft hovering, camouflaged to look like a balloon in, you know, television, long-range lenses, whatever, and a new player in the ET game has kind of joined the game and given that they may not have ever been here and they may not trust whoever they're allied with or in opposition to out there, they are trying to get their own ground truth and they decided to use the camouflage balloon technique. And the reason we did nothing is because you don't tug on Superman's cape into the wind. You don't pull on the mask of the old Lone Ranger, etc. And so we held our fire to see which of these alternatives this thing turned out to be, because if we did something wrong, a la the 1950s, when we actually shot at and shot down some UFOs, one could inadvertently trigger an interplanetary or interstellar war, and that would not be very good for everybody. So I'm not saying I'm married to the idea. I just think that given the ascendancy of the extraordinary anti-gravity vehicle technology at both the Pentagon and NASA and even in the president's latest NDAA where he signed this legal liberation for leaks, what might come out from inside from contractors, military personnel, whatever, is the real story, which would be legally you know, um, protected. So it could be told in the Times and the Post and on networks And so this may not be the end of the story. It may be just the beginning of the next phase 
of whatever ET in, in you know, surveillance, invasion, occupation that we've been living through for the last at least 70 years. That's a possibility. The Chinese immediately claimed ownership before yes. we did it. Before we did anything, yes, so and that, that, would, that this would have to be an American agreement with the Chinese. And it was very kind and gentle. It was, it was. They actually said things like apology, and you know, uh, they, they, they apologize. In other words, the the language of the Chinese in this communique, where they took responsibility, was very different than their normal communiques leading up to this over the last several years. And I just think that we know almost nothing, given the fact that I've listened to experts on all sides. I even watched a, you know, my major chunk of Fox tonight to get their perspectives. Given that all the experts are saying this is unprecedented and this is amazing and mind-boggling and they don't understand the Chinese rationale because, as you said earlier, we've got much better satellite technology, which to the general public and all nations is invisible – even though this kind of surveillance stuff is derogatory and is going on 24-7 on all sides, for this to be so visible meant that someone wanted it to be visible, and for us to be so restrained meant that we wanted it to appear that we were restrained, and that tells me there's so much more of this iceberg beneath the ocean than we're seeing. Well, we'll know for a fact in a couple of days when they pull the stuff out of the ocean, we'll know if it was Chinese or Alpha Centauri. Uh, yes, we well, unless, remember, if you're an ET civilization with advanced uh, technology, you can imitate anything. So it could even have Chinese markings on it. doesn't make it Chinese. If you do a deep forensic analysis of the materials and find unusual ways that things are made, it, it just could be, you know, not exactly the way we think it is. All right, so we'll just have to hold our breath for another few days and see what the government has to say. I have a feeling that this is not the end of the story. Okay, um, I want to loop back, unless uh, Lori or John has something on this subject to communicate or contribute. Guys? I don't have too much to say about the Chinese Okay. Balloon. I'm, I'm kind of just excited and watching to see what's going to happen on the world stage. <laughs> we are in the most interesting time. Okay, um, Russell, I want to loop back now to your life. You know, Ralph Edwards, this is your life. How did you wind up one of the world's preeminent remote viewers? How did you even craft and create the field? How did you make it stick so it now is another branch of admitted science how did you get the cia to take it seriously how did you wind up being invited to the soviet union by nothing less than the ussr academy of science in other words how did russell targ young boy growing up wanting to be a scientist wind up creating a stunning field of science in the 21st century well, you'll be happy to read my new book because my new book is sort of a memoir about remote viewing. New book is called Third Eye Spies, Learning Remote Viewing for the Masters. Third Eye Spies is the same name as a film that I put out a couple of years ago. So this is like the uh, sequel to my movie, 
but in this case, I really answer all of your questions. I got into remote viewing because as a child, I was doing magic. I was interested in sleight of hand and magic tricks because uh, I had that available to me next door to my father's bookshop in Chicago. And every kid loves to fool adults that they have a chance. So I, I had an introduction to doing magic. And then in New York, I could go to um, public magic shows on 42nd Street where there was a, something called Hubert's Flea Circus. And in the Flea Circus, you had uh, a strong man who could bend a, a railroad a rail, um, spikes. There was a woman with no arms who could typewrite. There was a bisexual woman who had uh, physical parts of both a man and a woman. I don't know if she would be allowed on the street anymore but she was known as a hermaphrodite. I think today she'd be called um, something else, not bisexual. Anyway, so she was there and so was the magician. So for a quarter, I could go and spend the day standing next to a card table where a magician is doing tabletop sleight of hand. And I could then go upstairs to the magic store where he bought his stuff and see magic tricks for sale and buy things that I like or could afford. So I had a little collection of things that I could bring on stage as a young teenager. And I was doing that uh, up to age of 14. I was doing, um, I was a a very nearsighted 14-year-old magician doing magic for birthday parties and for art openings. And that, that's how I got into this all. And what I discovered is when I was on stage, sometimes what I, I would have correct impressions of what a person's house would look like. There's one of the tricks that everybody does is a mind reading trick where you try and answer a question that somebody has written on a card and you're holding it up to your forehead. And of course, you've already read that card. But while I was pretending to read her mind, I would sometimes see what her house or her bedroom looks like. And I became interested in the fact that psychic abilities are available. And I sort of drifted away, uh, pretend magic, and got interested in the magic that was being published. And there was nearby... Institute for Society for Psychical Research is near Central Park. So I could just go and visit the ASPR, and they were very kind to a nearsighted 14-year-old who was interested in ESP. So I got interested in the actual uh, technology of psychic abilities from my experience on the stage and then from reading all of the things that were available from the uh, Society for Psychical Research. So did you ever, when you were doing the stage work, did you ever kind of amaze the uh, audience and the, the um, uh, shall we say, you know, volunteer by revealing things that they were not revealing publicly? Oh, frequently. Uh, well, not personally. I, what I, what I, 
let's see. Keith Morgan keeps beeping me. Is that something I should know? I don't think so at the moment. Do you know who Keith is? Keith Morgan. Yeah, Keith, is Keith, Keith Morgan is our IT specialist outside Washington, and he runs. Yeah, they're just letting you know when the break is coming, Russ. The break is Thank coming. In- yeah, we got about ninety seconds. So. Okay, so I I, I I could reveal what her house would look like. I never talked about her boyfriend or other personal matters. Well, that's good. <laughs> okay, tell you what, let's, let's I, hold it there. We are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, among three major guests, Russell Targ, pioneer in the science of remote viewing, Lori Williams, who is a another remote viewer of a different generation, and, of course, our own John Williams. And tonight we thought it would be interesting to use some Bumper music from Bond films and other spy adventures, given the backdrop of the Chinese balloon and what we're discussing. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I can see every part, nothing hides in the heart to hurt me. I don't need love for what good will love. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. A cold finger And welcome back everyone on this Saturday night, February 4th, 2023 My guests this morning are Russell Targ and Lori Williams and Jonathan Womack And as you know, Russell is one of the pioneers of the establishment of the 21st science This psychic science, this hyperdimensional science of remote viewing. And as he just told us in the last few minutes, he began at the uh, age of 14 doing parlor tricks, magic, uh, doing little presentations, shows. And when they came to the part where he would do the mind reading with people asking questions, he would sometimes, so you'd literally receive pictures of their, their lives and you'd interrupt their questions by interjecting things that normally they had no way of knowing how how you could know.
childhood is that I wanted to do something with remote viewing. Remote, why don't remote viewing is the ability that we all have that allows you to quiet your mind and describe and experience what's happening in the distance and what's happening in the future. And the most interesting thing that I discovered is that your accuracy and reliability of remote viewing is independent of how far away you're looking. That it's no harder to describe what's going on in Soviet Siberia than it is to describe what's happening across the street. Similarly, and even more surprising, it's no harder to describe what's going to happen days or weeks in the future than it is to describe the thing that's going on at the at the same time right now, contemporaneously. So the future can be known. Future is available to us, and the future can affect the present. The future can't change. The, the future cannot change the past, of course, but the future can affect the past. Now, we free, people frequently have precognitive dreams, where you have a dream that is not a wish fulfillment dream or is not an anxiety dream, but it's a dream that has nothing at all to do with your daily life. And then you wake up, you tell somebody about this crazy dream you have, and then within hours of that dream, you then get feedback and the thing occurs. It may occur on a television screen or it may occur in your life. Generally, if what you're dealing with is a precognitive dream, it appears that that dream that you have at 6 a.m. is caused by something that you actually experience a couple of hours later. So the future is affecting your past. This, this is, is such a, a it's, it's as though It's an important idea. It's as though your future brain is entangled. I miss is as though your future awakened brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. Hmm. Laura, you wanted and to say yeah. something? Yeah, I was just going to say that that's actually what got me into remote viewing was that my whole life I was having precognitive dreams. I dreamt about 9-11. Some of my earliest dreams, even as a baby, were about these planes crashing into skyscrapers. And then I had a dream two years before it happened, a very detailed dream in which every single detail came true. Um, so it's, it's very true that precognition is, a, is, is wrapped up with retrocausality, which is what Russell's talking about, where the future actually affects the past. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, and I teach it in a lot of the classes that I teach. And, and, uh, to, make, and to make that work well, you want to give the, in a classroom – you want to give immediate feedback because it's the fee- in the classroom situation, it's the feedback that drives the phenomenon. I have frequent, like every other month, I will have a dream that is corresponding very strongly to the first thing I see on my t- uh, television screen, which is the New York Times. <laughs> so I can have a dream of I'll tell you a brief. I'll tell you briefly because I you know telling your dreams is about as boring as telling about your last uh, acid. It's about tell, like telling your last acid trip. But for example, I, I had a dream 
which is described in my book, actually. I, I, I dreamt about uh, having a miniature toy railroad train running around the ceiling of my living room. It was a like a, a kid's toy train with a square front and lights on going in a circle around my living room, which is a high ceiling. So, and I, I don't have any kids here. I don't have any trains here. Never did. And I told my wife about this. My, my, my scheme is I don't get credit for a dream in the, in the big book unless I tell my wife about it before it occurs. <laughs> so in this case, I told her about the electric train. Then I turned on my computer, whose homepage is the New York Times, and on the front page of the New York Times, they had a story about rebuilding the elevated in Chicago. When, and in downtown Chicago, it's called the Loop because the train goes in a circle around the whole downtown area uh, to, as a way of reversing itself from going north to going south. Like a toy and train. And I was very familiar with that area because my father's bookstore in Chicago was right under the elevated. So I, when this thing, when I, when this thing appeared on my screen, I was absolutely blown away because there's a beautiful picture of elevated tracks going in a circle, and I and I published that in my brand new book because it's a perfect example of a dream being caused by the feedback that I get a couple of hours earlier, and the idea of entanglement is now totally kosher. Three scientists have got a Nobel Prize last uh, September for their demonstration that photons that are uh, born together remain together. That is, your photons that are created in the same experience that go across the universe and if you grab one, it affects the other one even though it's far, far away. So that kind of entanglement I'm asserting that the that the idea of entanglement that they show with photons is the entanglement between the waking brain and the sleeping brain, so that if the waking brain at 10 o'clock sees a railroad track, you can see that in the experience of the sleeping brain, because those brains are connected. Okay, question. When you were growing up, did you ever have a set of toy trains? I certainly did. So the way this communication seems to work is that the event, which has a its own reality, appears to you in a symbolic version of your reality, your experience, because obviously you weren't literally seeing a toy train on the ceiling of your current home but these are kind of mixed metaphorical messages and they're not really useful because unless you can decode the multi-level symbolism, there's no way you could a priori have used that to say they're going to redo the loop in Chicago. And uh, you know, when you see the news story in two hours. No, but if you do a careful experiment, you can use this kind of precognitive ability to forecast changes in the, silver commodity futures in the stock market. And we did that shortly after I left SRI. We did nine trials to forecast whether the market is going to go up or go, go down, up a little or down a little 
and all nine of our forecasts were correct, and we made a quarter million dollars for our nine trials, that was nine trials and no errors. And we did not publish that in the um, American Society for Psychical Research. We published that on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so why didn't you open the little shop where the sign says, market forecast 100% guaranteed? Well, a no, number of reasons for not doing that. Uh, the variable in that is how the viewers are feeling. So that uh, in our case, we began to get carried away with delusions of grandeur <laughs> and how we're going to court how we are going to corner the silver market. And our investor wanted to do the things twice as often, two times a week. And we tried that. And the fact that the viewer did not get feedback for trial one until he had done trial two uh, interfered with that working. However, there's an organization called IRVA, which is the International Association for Remote Viewing, which just had its 50th anniversary. And there are many, many people in IRVA who are not researchers, but they're using remote viewing to make money, generally not in the stock market, but in gambling and sports events, which give you a better return on your investment. So the idea of encouraging people to have a psychic experience of their future uh, has been harnessed now. We had a couple of hundred people at this conference uh, just to celebrate remote viewing. As they fear, as I started the program in 1972, and we in, in 2022, we uh, celebrated our 50th anniversary of remote viewing. The remote viewing is still thriving. When you say and, it's still, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say that Russell pretty much invented associated remote viewing, and I'll be teaching a class on it this coming week from the 10th to the 12th. It's a three-day workshop on associated remote viewing. And every class that I teach, we have a 100% accuracy rate in predicting the outcome of games, of any kind of a game. So that's why we're holding it on Super Bowl weekend. Oh. Um, because we have, so far, we have not, never failed. We have correctly predicted the outcome of the games. Um, and so it's really, it's a lot of fun. We do, we play roulette in the class. We do uh, prediction of games. We, uh, I teach people how to pick a winning scratch off. And so far in all my classes, students win money when they go out during the lunch break to utilize this technique to pick a winning scratch-off ticket. So we've been having a lot of fun utilizing associative remote viewing. Well, see, over the years, where you... this has been one of the critics' uh, criticisms, which is, well, if this is real, guys, you know, there'd be people, talented people use it, and they'd, they'd own the world. And all I've seen in the literature I reviewed is that it either does not work or it's set at a low level that it's been indistinguishable from noise and there's been a whole bunch of, you know, kind of uh, frames, cultural frames built around it. Like if people try to use it for their own benefit, it doesn't work, that kind of thing. But what you're telling well, me, I think, go, go ahead. Really plays a role. 
I think greed definitely plays a role in having it not work. <laughs> you know, like if you're really like at, you feel avarice, like, oh, I'm going to get rich from this. It seems that it does have a negative effect on it. But I can tell you that I've taught thousands of students now. I probably teach more students more often than any other remote viewing teacher on the planet. Um, I have 120,000 followers. And the, the thing about CRV and ARV is that if you have the right attitude, it seems like it works exceedingly well. But let me ask you a question, Richard. If you found a gold ring in your backyard, you might tell everybody like, oh my gosh, it was amazing. I found this gold ring. You know, it's a really old ring and it's worth a lot of money or whatever. But if you found a treasure chest worth millions in your backyard, you probably wouldn't tell anyone about it because you would, you'd be a little bit worried about what would happen if you spread that around. And so when people always say, well, how come, you know, there's not more people winning the lottery? Well, no, number one, how do we know that there's not, you know? I think there are a lot of people winning the lottery. I wanted to say two things. First of all, thank well, you. Well, wait, 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 so you mean a lot of people using remote viewing like you just yes, described. Okay. Are making money. And yeah, they're no, doing it quietly. On the QT. I want to thank Lori for giving me credit for inventing remote viewing, but I did not do that. It was invented by Stephen Schwartz. Oh, the associate, we're talking about associated remote viewing specifically. Yeah, that, were, that, that, that belongs to Stephen. Oh, good to know. I know Stephen. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. good to know. I, 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 the, other, I, the other thing I wanted to say is okay. why are we going to the trouble of doing that? It would be nice if you just say uh, there's a big board called the big board it's in on wall street and it will put up the uh price of silver at the end of the week why don't you look at the board and the answer is it's almost impossible to guess numbers if a really? person could learn to look at the big board on the wall street on the commodity exchange that would make things a lot easier but that's basically impossible to do because guessing numbers is a analytical ability. You have to guess right. the numbers. And so the, and, the and, and, and we're very bad at doing analysis. Right. But one of the things we've learned is that the body is the link between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And so what we found is that the body seems to be linked to the subconscious, which seems to have all the information in all of time and space. So when we teach people how to utilize their bodies, to get the responses and the answers that they need, that's the way they come up with answers and avoiding the whole numerical issue altogether. And so I'll give you an example. I walked into one of the IRVA conferences. Um, Russ just mentioned IRVA, and he and I have been speakers at many of those conferences together. And I walked in, and a bunch of my students ran up. And they were all excited, and they said, we just won a bunch of money at the casino because we used the techniques that you taught us, and we were able to determine the first, second, and third place winners of the Triple Crown. So the guy was like, I, I bet 40 bucks and I made $1,600. And they mm. were super excited by, uh, by being able to do this. And how did they do it? They didn't try to do any numbers whatsoever. What they did was they just remote viewed the colors of the blankets of the first, second. Oh, third, my please. gosh. How can <laughs> Russell, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your remote viewing work at SRI, and I want to kind of do a random walk to get to SRI in a minute had to do with artists drawing pictures of what you guys saw. You would describe it or you do the sketches yourself. Why couldn't you do just sketches of a board? Because, you know, 
a board is a picture, is a you know, pattern of light and shadow shading. It's, it's, too, it's a signal to noise problem. We have to teach people. <clears throat> Amigo Swan is the one who articulated that for us. It's a you have to improve. You, we don't know how to improve the psychic signal, but we've been very skillful at learning to diminish the psych the mental noise. That is, if you have if I if I tell you that I'm thinking of a number from one to ten, and I'll give you a million dollars if you guess my number. You'll immediately say, well, he wouldn't pick one or ten because he just named those numbers. And he probably wouldn't pick seven because it's everybody's lucky number. And that process you just, I just described is an analytical number. And the, that analysis is what interferes with guessing things that have an analytical answer. Now, what Ingo... When Ingo first came to our lab at SRI, this is Ingo Swan, the great natural psychic and visionary artist, he said, I'm not going to spend any more time looking in the box or looking in the next room. That's a trivialization of my ability. If I can focus my attention anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area, why would I look in your little box? If I want to open the box, I'll look in the box. And he said, why don't, why, don't, why don't you have somebody go hide in the Bay Area, and I'll describe what it looks like where he is. So Ingo, in one sentence, invented the idea of the remote viewing that we're doing. He said, if he can look anywhere in the world, give me a target that's worth doing. So he would describe the environment, and someone would sketch it, right? No, he would sketch it. Okay, so... Uh, why, why, can't, why, why can't someone sketch the big board for the S&P 500? It's a, because that's an analytical task. That is the, the viewer is trying to quiet his mind. But what I tell my viewer, I basically have a one-sentence introduction to remote viewing. And that is, I say, uh, Lori's going to hide somewhere. I have no idea where it is. Could you just take a couple of deep breaths and tell me about the surprising images that show up in your awareness? That's all I have to say. I don't tell her how to do it. Don't tell her what to do. I tell them, just quiet your mind and look for a surprise. And they will then find the surprising element about what she's doing. And And that works Flawlessly, I've done that with the Undersecretary of Defense who came to decide if we could teach the Army how to be psychic. And he gave a wonderful description of a of fountain where he and his, he gave a wonderful description of, his, of a fountain where my partner Hal and his major had gone to hide as a random place. I ne- See, I'm the interviewer. And I never know the answer, so I, I, I'm a I'm the I'm a blind partner has nothing to do with my vision, but I can I can say anything I want to the viewer to help him because I don't know anything about the answer except it's within a half hour drive of SRI. So because I've been doing this now for 20 years, I can often tell 
that a person is guessing or trying to name things. And I say, why don't we start over and just tell me what you're experiencing? Don't, don't, don't try and name it. And that's often helpful. I even, I once had an Israeli physicist, a very famous guy who's going to get a Nobel prize one of these days named Ranoff. And he was brought to me because he was a skeptic and he was a very smart guy. And I was supposed to show him what remote viewing looks like. And he was very shocked to find out that he was going to be the viewer. Because whenever I have to do a demonstration, it's always a skeptic who's the viewer. And I say uh, that your your friend together with Hal gone to hide somewhere. Uh, can you What can you tell me about where they are? And he says, I don't know about you, Russ, but when I close my eyes, it's dark. So I said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And finally, I said, well, they're going to be back here in 10 minutes. Why don't you, I know you don't see anything. Why don't you close your eyes and pretend that you see something? Make something up as though it's a, <laughs> as, as though it's a free response psychological experiment. Just if you make something up, what do you see? He says, I see, I see some ducks crossing the road. My mother in Israel had a duck farm, and that's what I see. And what you can guess is the place that they had randomly been sent to is a duck pond in Palo Alto by the airport. <laughs> so, which were associated because of his own childhood background. That's right. So the interviewer plays a surprisingly strong part in coaxing the person to part with his psychic experiences, but he's never done it before. And I've had to do that many, many times where my reward for doing that is the person will continue the funding for our program. <laughs> and I wound up having to, we chose six people who were part of Army Intelligence, and we had to choose six, and I had to do experiments with all six of them and if they were successful, then we got to create a psychic army corps, and we did that, and that corps ran for another decade. Okay, uh, we got about five minutes to the top of the hour. Let me ask this. Let me answer. Let me answer the one question you asked, though. You said, "Why can't someone just sketch the board?" And the reason is because nowadays what we use is controlled remote viewing and what we know is that it's based on brain science wait a minute wait a minute i'll tell you when we come back we need to define these terms the difference between controlled remote viewing and associated remote viewing this is like down in the weeds but it's important to be on the same page so so let me hold that and we'll ask that when we come back when we have time for your answer let me go back to russell Russell, given this huge China thing, would it be useful to get a remote viewer or more than one to try to figure out, to, to do a template match with what the intention is? In other words, instead of trying to describe equipment and whatever, to get in the minds of whoever set this thing up to what they're up to, what the intention is. Can, can this science do that? Uh, that's very, that would be very hard to do because what we're doing, what we're so, very successful at this doing is describing what you experience at a later time, or, or what's happening at a later time. We've never, we've not, uh, we've not done 
what you're talking about a kind of mental telepathy and i think that the signal to noise ratio of mental telepathy is not as great as what you can achieve when you have an actual object to describe hmm. although although I've, I've had a completely different experience in working with all these students thousands of students and i was actually able to get the information from a kidnapper using remote viewing, accessing the name of the organization that had done the kidnapping, and it turned out to be accurate. So we're finding that there is a, a way to get around the signal-to-noise ratio and even to work alone without an interviewer. Uh, but we are using kind of an evolved type of remote viewing now. And so we can talk about that maybe after the break. Yeah, by all means. The other thing, Russell, you said something interesting a little while ago, and we will not have time to get into this on this side of the break, but you said that over the decades you've been doing this, <clears throat> you've had two problems. One is the amplification of the signal and the reduction of the noise in the receiver, and you've been able to reduce the noise, but you haven't figured out how to amplify the signal. Is that an accurate uh, reflection of what you, what you said? That's exactly what I said. Okay. Have you tried external modalities to try to amplify the signal and i'll give you an example have you put your experiment inside a pyramid which we found no, we put, say again well what uh, a number of people put the person inside of an electrically shielded room and my impression is that uh for from several people's work putting a person in an electrically shielded room will cut down the noise from uh, what's going on in the planetary motions and uh, interstellar noise coming into the Earth. So there's a, a, a daily number associated with the noise. And what we've discovered is that if you put somebody in a shielded room, that does improve their performance. Hmm. Okay. Well, that occasion is a discussion on the return back from the break of about the physics of how this might work. I tell you what, let's hold it there. My guest of the morning is Russell Targ and Lori Williams and John uh, Womack is being very quiet in the background. He's either thinking of a really good question or a really good example. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking this morning, remote viewing, the 21st science of figuring out where things are when they're not where you are. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return momentarily. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 4th of 2022. Shirley Bassey in the background. We're doing kind of the uh, greatest spy thriller drama, James Bond, Spies in the Sky. What did I say? 2022? I meant 2023. See how time flies when you're not having fun. Actually, I'm having a great deal of fun. I'm finally getting to talk to... The Russell Targ, one of the key founders at SRI of this extraordinary and not really believed or understood or widely known by too many people even yet of remote viewing. So let me swing right back into a, a conversation uh, about about. identify what's going on in Soviet weapons factory and we did that for a living what we did for a living is operational things for the CIA and as you know the CIA is not easily amused so so they would not continue to give us a million or two million dollars a week but Russell most people don't know any of this it's like that's why you have to keep writing books I'm 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 trying to answer your question because you you don't really know it either that is we 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 supported ourselves at more than a million dollars a year from the CIA by doing operational things finding people and our, our film open Third Eye Spies movie opens with Jimmy Carter saying the most remarkable thing that occurred during my presidency is some psychics in California found a downed Russian airplane with code books on it that was crashed in Africa. And that's the kind of thing that we did week in and week out for the CIA. Now, the fact that we published things in Nature magazine and the American Physics Society doesn't impress anybody but the fact that we made a lot of money in the market along with other people and the fact that we supported ourselves for two decades getting doing operational things for the CIA I would think people could understand that probably what we were doing was pretty successful I'm not saying any of that I'm just saying generally in the culture as a whole 
this information is not known, which is one of the reasons why I wanted you on tonight. Let me go back. Thank, to, you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Okay, let me talk theory. You're a physicist, a mainstream physicist, and you talked about Faraday cages or putting people in electrically shielded rooms and having apparent differences in signal to noise, you know, better, better viewing, better results, better consistency, and all that. Do you have a theory, a model of how remote viewing works? Well, I have a very strong model for what interferes with remote viewing, and that is being in a noisy electrical environment where strong electrical fields will scramble your brain definitely interferes with your remote viewing. Now, people have done that observation all over the world, and they, it's not, they now know during times of the season where you have basically, basically the, when you have the strongest sunspots in the sun, that creates the strongest electrical interference on Earth, and that uh, definitely interferes with your psychic abilities. Now, what we think is actually going on is that we think that, the, that we live in a complex space-time. What that means is that we have our ordinary three space dimensions in one time dimension you're, that you're familiar with. And we think that each of those dimensions is a real part and an imaginary part. And let's just not go into what that actually means. But it means that when you make a description of where a person is, you have to realize that the coordinates where they are in space-time has a real part and an imaginary part. So there will always be a path from where you are to where I am, some path will equal zero. That is because because all the court because distances are always some x plus i y, the real part and an imaginary part. You, there will always be some path you can find through the space time where that total path is zero. So the reason you can do the remote viewing independent of distance and independent of time is because you can always find a path where there's no separation. Now, this idea of complex space-time is not something that we just made up. Uh, Minkowski developed that for Einstein in the early 1900s as a basis for special relativity. Minkowski was a great uh, geometer, and Einstein was not. So it was with the help of Minkowski that Einstein could write the equations uh, he used to describe uh, how, how things move in space-time. So the, in a nutshell, I would say that uh, your remote viewing works because you, you always find a path that has zero distance between you and the thing you're trying to describe. Can remote viewing literally transpire across time? In other words, is time a geodesic where it's really, as the Einstein model says, all geometry? So everything is happening at once except for the separation of geometry? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that. I think that that's, 
I think that's cute to say. I, I don't know <laughs> that I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think that uh, the fact that we can describe, there's no doubt that we can describe things in the future. Now, you, you wanted to know, we're, we're throwing around this term, associative remote viewing. And I think that's worth describing. That is what we know that in general, a person cannot read the numbers on the commodity board exchange. So you make an agreement of the form, uh, I'm going to put something in your hand. Here we are on Monday. I'm going to put something in your hand on Friday. All I'm asking you to do right now is tell me what you're experiencing with regard to what I'm going to put in your hand five days from now. And you do that. You say that I, I see something that's round and kind of floppy and has a funny smell that I don't like. That, that's, that's what I get. I say, thank you very much, Richard. I then call my broker and say, we've done a remote viewing for today. What are your four objects? For up a little, up a lot, down a little, down a lot. He said, well, I got four objects here on my desk. I have a coffee cup, I have a bouquet of flowers, I've got a book, and I've got my leftover pancake. (laughs) And I would say to him, well, it sounds like the round, floppy, funny-smelling thing sounds like your pancake. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what does that mean? And he said, "That, that corresponds to down a lot. So based on the fact that my viewer smelled the pancake, we were able to sell $20,000 worth of silver into the market, and that was one of our best returns. And we, we were confident enough with what we were doing that we, would, we knew that that guy is not going to... See, there's no other source for the smelly pancake <laughs> except for the thing that my broker has on his desk. Right. So if a guy experiences a smelly pancake... The only place to get that is that I'm going to put it in his hand next Friday. And the only reason I would choose that particular object is because the market went down a lot. So we call that associative remote viewing. You're, you're not, the thing you're viewing has nothing to do with the market. All I'm asking you to do so is something I know you can do. Just tell me, what are you experiencing when we get together Friday and I put something in your hand and we did that nine times in a row without error. So you're able to trick the mind by going into symbolic substitution. Exactly. And that's, and that's, and and that's a pattern match as opposed to an analytical left brain analysis. That's right. This is not a new idea. Remote viewing is not new age. That is on the wall of my office here. You can't see it. I have a large poster of Padmasambhava, who is a Buddhist, a Buddhist who brought Buddhism from India, where he was a famous guru, to Tibet. So Padmasambhava invented Tibetan Buddhism, and his book, his his famous book, called Self-Realization Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. Sounds very contemporary. Mm-hmm. And he says, your, your nature is timeless awareness. You can move your mind through space and through time 
And because you can move through time, your mind is free of cause and effect. It's very advanced thinking for 1,200 years ago. And you say, in order to experience this timeless awareness, you have to give up your desire to grasp or to name the thing that you're experiencing. So Padmasambhava knew 1,200 years ago that naming and grasping is the enemy of psychic abilities. Yes, that's so great. One of our mantras is describe, don't identify. And it really helps people. People are finding that uh, remote viewing is a great self-discovery tool because they find out how often we mislabel things, we judge incorrectly. And okay. so learning to describe rather than to identify is a huge um, leap forward in your personal development. Okay, I want each of you to answer the same question, but from your own professional background, starting with Russell, and then we'll go to Lori. Russell, over the de- decades when you were doing this at SRI and other places, you dealt with X number, you know, 100,000 professionals in a wide range of, of backgrounds. Who did you find made the best remote viewers? What disciplines, what careers, what talents? People who had great self-confidence in their lives, not necessarily uh, as psychics, but anybody, the the business, put it this way, the, the head of a laboratory who comes in and said, I don't believe in this stuff, but I'm the... I'm a Nobel Prize winner in physics, and I run a thousand people in my lab at SR at IBM. Now show me something, <laughs> and I, and I will say you sound like you're, like you're a man with great success doing difficult things. He said that's what I do for a living. I said, well, I have something very easy for you to do if you just follow my instructions. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to believe in remote viewing. If you just do what I tell you, you'll be able to have this interesting experience. And that's my story. If, if the, the, the president of the company in general will be more successful than the hippie girl who comes in and feels that she is nothing if she, except if she weren't psychic. The, mm. the, the IBM guy has no... Uh, nothing at at the stake. He doesn't give a damn whether he's psychic or not psychic. Uh, what is his life is about accomplishing what there is to accomplish. And if he would just follow, that's like the physicist, the Israeli physicist, who strongly did not believe in ESP, but he knew that he was a physicist and understands everything about the world, and he would do his damnedest to try and follow my instructions. And I'm a very experienced interviewer, so I was able to trick him into having an experience, even though I had no idea what the answer was. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, Lori, with your vast background in, in, in civilian students, same question. Which type of people relate best to this and are able to make it work? Well, I agree with Russell completely that confidence is a huge piece because... So knowing yourself, being a person who... Knowing yourself, being a person who 
has a picture of yourself as an identity is important? A picture of yourself as a successful person. Ah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I see in my students all the time and that I saw in myself for the first few years when I was studying this, I started studying it in 1996. And one of the things I realized is that fear, especially because we're in a culture that everything is pass or fail, you get an A or you get an F, you know, and maybe you even were disciplined for failing as a kid. I see students coming in and they're afraid of making a mistake. So the first thing I like to teach them is give yourself permission to make a mistake. And once they overcome the fear of making a mistake, I have another mantra. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it on the air, but it's make, you know what, up. <laughs> Give yourself permission to make shit up. Begins, begins do, with a capital S, right? Yes, exactly. And <laughs> that was a huge revelation for me in my own development. And I started. Well, hey, hang so on, hang on. I remember when Russell said the physicist, when, when he was given permission to just make something up? He then exactly. gravitated that to his exactly. childhood duck farm mommy thing, and bingo, exactly. he got it. Exactly, and that is the key. The key is when you just let go and you stop worrying about what is the target. Who cares about the I had a lady who was a high school teacher. She taught high school English, and uh, the second day of class, she got really scared, and she said, I'm, I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting anything. And I said, if you forget about the target, you're an English teacher, right? She said, yeah. And I said, could you just rattle off like the first 10 adjectives that come to mind? And she said, oh, yeah, I could do that. And I said, okay, do that. She completely described her target. Completely. Yeah, just, you know, just because she just forgot about the target and just started just saying some adjectives. So that's so part of the trick here is to get people to disconnect the left-right brain thing. The left brain, yes. The left brain is the analytical part, the part that's going to say, don't say that. It can't be both hot and cold. You know, those kinds of thoughts that come in mm-hmm. that try to logically tell you, don't, don't write that down. Don't say that. Those are, the, those are the things that keep you from actually accessing the psychic ability that is within you. And so, yeah, we find that there's no one who can't learn this, though. I haven't had a student yet who couldn't learn it. But in terms of people who are most successful out of the gate, those who are positive, successful, are positive about their success, kind of centered, those are the most successful at this, right? Well, now, though, we have free classes going out, and we've had thousands and thousands of people take this free class that I have on my website at intuitivespecialist.com, and people go on there, and they take that free class, and they're having amazing success, and some of these people are very successful, very confident, but there are some people who are homeless and living in their cars. You know, so I had a guy who wrote me and he said, I wanted to take your classes for a long time. I didn't have any money. So I used the free class on your website called uh, 15 Steps to Win the Lotto. Mm-hmm. He said, and I won $7,000. So Holy Christ. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful endorsement. Talk about stepping stones. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, you know, I think that anybody can do it. And I agree with Russell, though, I think that, the less you care about the success of it and the more confident you are in your general life, I think that does start people off on a really great place, in a really great place. So that's a good thing for sure. But I also have found that people who have a good balance of left and right brain skills also seem to be make the best remote viewers. You know, if you have – I had a guy come who had – 
gone to school at MIT. He owned a big computer com- conglomerate. And he said, I am so left-brained. I know I'm not going to be able to do this. Mm. And, uh, and so he said so – well, Why was that his presupposition? Why did he think that that side of him just, would preclude it? He just thought that he was just so analytical that he would not be able to do it. But he did a fine job. You know, he did very well. And he, of course, was a successful businessman. So, uh, you know, so there are people who think they won't be able to do it. I have found sometimes people who are extremely right-brained um, have a hard time with, you know, with sometimes not naming things, wanting to always use nouns, um, and whereas adjectives are the way to go, <laughs> descriptive words rather than naming words. Hmm. So, yeah. So, so let me ask you, Laurie, I, I revealed that I got into remote viewing from a childhood misspent doing magic and hypnosis <laughs> on the stage. How did you get into, how did you get into remote viewing? Well, actually, I was a missionary for 20 years, but my whole life, from the time I was little, I was having precognitive dreams, and these dreams would come true very specifically. I had a dream. I would, they would often warn me of danger, and then I would encounter that danger the very next day and, and be prepared because I had been warned, and so um, I was very curious about how these things would happen in my life and what was the explanation behind it. Um, so when I was doing missionary work, I got into missionary work and thought, oh, well, surely, you know, once I, once I'm serving God, you know, I won't have these weird experiences anymore. Well, you know, of course <laughs> that wasn't true. <laughs> they became even stronger as, uh, and when I was doing missionary work and I traveled all over Latin America. And when I came back, I was really eager to reconcile a Christian belief system with all these weird things that had happened to me my whole life, precognitive dreams and seeing spirits and things like that. So I was reading some research that had been done with children who had had near-death experiences, and they found that they had a higher degree of accurate psychic ability. And I had apparently had a near-death experience as a baby where I died and had to be revived. I don't remember it because I was very tiny, but But it was interesting. I was very different from everyone else in my family. So I was attending a a conference in Denver for about post-traumatic stress disorder. And there was a man who was speaking that I dreamt about that first night of the conference. It was a total stranger. And I dreamt that I was asking him about a man I had just met in Amarillo, Texas, who was a retired colonel in the military. And so the next morning I got to the place early and there was this man standing there and we were alone and I just blurted out, I had a dream about you last night. <laughs> My mother always said, if you want a man to remember you, tell him you had a dream about you. <laughs> <But anyway, laughs> so he, this guy said, really, what did you dream? Because we were total strangers. And I said, well, I dreamt I was asking you about a colonel that I just met in Amarillo. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm a colonel and I just retired uh, from the military, and, and what what branch of the military was this colonel in? And I said, I don't know. I think military intelligence. And he said, Oh, that's interesting. I was in military intelligence. Hmm. And right as talking to me, the cover of Dave Morehouse's book Psychic Warrior flashed in my mind, and I said, Oh my gosh, have you seen that new book? And he said, What book? 
And I said, I don't remember the name of it, but it's turquoise and black on the cover, and it has something to do with psychics in the military. And it had just come out. It was on the new arrival shelf. I hadn't even bought it. And he said, yeah, that's really weird that you're asking me about that book because I was a psychologist uh, working in that program for 20 years. I would kind of vet the guys that would go into the program. And so then he was very interested in me, and he was kind of leaning into my space and asking me a million questions. Are you artistic? And uh, do you remember numbers easily? Do you remember math? <laughs> <laughs> he slipped into recruiting mode. Oh, and I was and I was kind of backing away. You know, I was having, <laughs> I was getting a little scared and nervous. And so as as I was walking away from him, he said, "When you get home, go on the internet and look up controlled remote viewing." So I did, and I found Lynn Buchanan's website. Lynn Buchanan, uh, right before he retired, was one of the trainers in the unit in Fort Meade. And that was the applications unit. The uh, Russell was in Palo Alto, and that was the research arm. And then they had the applications arm there at Fort Meade. And so I met uh, Lynn Buchanan. I had to go to Maryland a few days later, and I got to meet him and talk with him and his wife for about five hours. And that's how um, that's how I ended up getting into it. This was in 1996. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Lynn and his wife just took me under their wing, and I started learning from them. I just started studying with Lynn really intensely. Um, he made me come to his house for every class he taught uh, every, every other weekend for two years. And I, um, I'm a mom of seven children. And so, and I had a really crazy job resettling refugees. So I think he thought that if he just told me to bring in the broomstick of the w- wicked witch of the West, that I wouldn't do it. But I, I kept showing up every other weekend, like a bad penny. And now, um, now I, I have the foremost class, for remote viewing in the world, on the planet, actually, at intuitivespecialist.com. And I put a ton of free stuff there because my goal is for people to learn about this. As you said, Richard, too many people don't know about this. And so, um, so that's my vision is really letting people explore their own potential through yeah. remote viewing. The thing that's so interesting, Russell and Laurie and John, who's there somewhere in the background, is that if this is so commonplace and easy to do and has made some people money and has produced stunning, you know, uh, intelligence data, et cetera, et cetera, the fact that there's this big gaping black hole when it comes to the media coverage, positive coverage, tells me that somebody in our culture, in our societies, does not want everybody to know this works. Well, well it's, for, I, you know, it's forbidden in America. It's forbidden to be psychic. The government doesn't want you to do it, and the church doesn't want you to do it. The big negative press for meditation during the time of, trans, of uh, meditation was very popular about 20 years ago, the transcendental meditation, and the papers were very negative about it because the church was negative, the reason the church is negative about meditation and ESP is it sort of offers you free of char- free of charge or uh, spirituality. Well, you kind of go to the source without going through the middleman. It's an opportunity exactly. opportunity to know experience the divine, and you don't have to pay anybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Right. And you don't have to confess your sins. I mean. That's the most elegant part of the Catholic Church. You routinely tell everybody your worst secrets so they have it on you. I mean, come on. 
That's yes. bizarre. <laughs> okay, we are at the uh, bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there. My guest this morning, I actually heard a little tiny voice in the background that I think was John. Maybe we can get him to move forward toward the uh, front of the pew here uh, when we come back. My guest this morning, Russell Targ and Lisa uh, Laurie Williams, and we're discussing the ins and outs and ups and downs and time-dimensional aspects of remote viewing. And I want to bring Russell back to how did he get from a 14-year-old kid you know, doing magic and amazing his audiences by knowing more things about his uh, his uh, uh, guinea pigs than than he should have known when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we will be right back. Don't go away. Here's another cut from, I believe this is a view to a kill. This is Duran Duran. I love Duran Duran. And our homage to spies tonight, both uh, covert, hovering in balloons, and in other dimensions. But you know the plans I'm making The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night of February 2023. See, I get that right if I do it enough times. It's, uh, you know, still signing checks for the wrong date and all that stuff. Well, anyway, my guests tonight, Russell Targ and 
I keep telling you to call you Lisa. It's Lori Williams. I know that. And Jonathan Womack. And uh, let me come back and uh, um, reintroduce where we are. Um, you're talking about the kind of people who can do this best and, you know, taking classes and a guy that went from homeless to won seven grand. Uh, can people actually make a living, guys, doing this if they learn the kind of rules of the road? Well, actually, one of the things that we have right now is a three-year path to professional certification. We have, I have professional students now who earn their living doing things like finding missing pets or uh, finding missing objects very successfully. And, of course, I usually tell people, though, when they ask me that, I usually say, well, don't quit your day job because it's not like there's a ton of income opportunities out there. But we do have, like, we have one man who works with insurance companies to help them uncover fraud and find stolen art, for example. Um, then, you know, others working with archaeologists. We worked with archaeologists. And there's so many different ways. That it's unlimited, all the things that you can do with remote viewing. And so, yes, you could earn a living at it, but I think you'd have to have the kind of personality that's willing to go out there and, you know, climb out on the limb and cut it off because not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur. And I think the only way to make a living as a controlled remote viewer, as a remote viewer in general, would be to be an entrepreneur. Okay, there you use that term again, controlled remote viewer. What's the difference between a remote viewer and a control remote viewer? Um, do, you, like do, you, do you tie them in a chair or something? <laughs> no, the difference, the difference is, uh, think about the term martial arts. If I said to you, hey, I have a tenth, I'm a 10th degree black belt in martial arts, your first question would be, what kind of martial arts, right? Because martial arts is a generic term that means a lot of things, mm -hmm. taekwondo, jiu-jitsu, et cetera. So the same thing with remote viewing. Remote viewing is a kind of a, a catch-all term for anything psychic. You know, as, as Russell brought out 1,200 12, 12, years ago, uh, they already had a lot of this figured out. And so remote viewing is the generic term for anything psychic. I have people call me and say, I'm a remote viewer. I read poems or I'm a remote viewer. I, you know, I, I read tarot cards. And so remote viewing has kind of fallen into that category. Uh, associative remote viewing is when you associate something easy to remote view with something difficult to remote view, like numbers. Um, and then controlled remote viewing, I like to consider it the basket that can hold all the other types of remote viewing. When Russ was doing this for SRI, he was the interviewer, and that term we now refer to as the monitor. And he would simply say, close your eyes and tell me what you see, essentially. Uh, nowadays, we have thousands of viewers who don't have the benefit of having someone there to interview them. And the structure that was created by Ingo Swan um, is actually now become kind of the plane that we use. Why don't we fly the same plane that they flew at Kitty Hawk? Why isn't the military using that plane anymore? It's because... Uh, they've developed it now to where the planes can do so much more than those initial planes. And so uh, now the, the family of Ingo Swan has made it really clear that Ingo always wanted uh, remote viewing to evolve, and it certainly has. We stand on the shoulders of these great people who have really initiated all this, and now uh, we're accomplishing so many different things, and we have so many different applications that it can be used for. Hmm. Russell, I want to come back to you. How did you go from
from 14 doing magic shows to SRI physicists creating the science of remote viewing. Take us through those steps, if you know, whatever level well, of I, I, I was aware that I wanted to do something with psychic research for a living, but I had been already going to conferences by the American Society for Psychical Research and so forth, and I saw that a lot of very nice, interesting people there and by and large, they were all poor. And I had grown up at the end of the Depression, and I didn't want to recapitulate that experience. So I felt that since I also like physics, maybe I should get a degree in physics. And if I was successful at that, then I would be able to far parlay my credentials in physics for doing something in psychic research. And that worked. I spent 15 years in ESP, in laser research after I left graduate school. And the last thing I was involved with was building the most powerful laser that existed anywhere at that time. They built a 1,000-watt carbon dioxide laser in 1972, and that was recognized as quite an accomplishment because I did this in a very small package, and the other ones that were similar were 100 feet long. And I thought of a couple of tricks to allow you to pour more and more energy into the laser to make it very, very powerful. So I, got, I was pretty well known at the end of uh, my 50 years um, in laser research, and I had built stuff for the CIA and for NASA. And I had also built something called that I call an ESP teaching machine, which is a four-choice feedback and reinforcement gadget. And I had a chance to bring that to a conference on speculative technology that NASA was holding. I think we have a picture, number 10, in your items in Radio with Pictures from 1969. And yeah, and I brought that to the conference, and Werner Von Brown did very, very well with my ESP game. And I explained that I wanted to use this feedback and reinforcement to teach astronauts how to get in touch with their spacecraft, because earlier in that year, Apollo 13 almost crashed because of a failure of an oxygen tank, and it was only through Neil Armstrong's great success of the pilot that they didn't lose that spacecraft. And I thought it would be very helpful as astronauts became more in touch with their spacecraft. So Von Braun took me to the director, the big boss of NASA, who's uh, James Fletcher. And Von Braun said, well, we can give these guys a few bucks to test the ESP teaching machine. And at that point, uh, you mean test the astronauts using it? Yes, teach them how to do that. Because Ed Mitchell, who of course was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 14, had this ESP experiment going to and from the moon with Rhine cards, etc. And he came home and he set up Noetics Institute uh, north of you there in uh, the Bay Area. And that's just what I was going to say. Edgar Mitchell walked by at this conference, 
And he said, well, I'm working now with SRI. I can introduce uh, Russell to the president of SRI, oh. along with his new friend, Hal Putoff. So Edgar Mitchell, Putoff, and I went to meet Charlie Anderson and carried with us our promise from NASA for $80,000 to get started with an ESP teaching machine. And that's how the SRI program got started. This has a synchronicity. The, I was invited to this guests-only guests conference because uh, the man who held the conference happened to walk in on a talk that I was giving. There's a whole collection of amazing synchronicities that all, all, all occurred well, I can tell you brief, briefly. Yeah, well, we have time. Uh, uh, That's what long-form radio is. Talk about them. What were these synchronicities? Yeah, I, was, I gave a talk at Esalen Institute. In, and uh, I met the, in, back in Big Sur. In Big, in Big Sur. And I met the director of Esalen, Mike Murphy, and he liked my talk about American and Soviet ESP research. And we, we got together and we liked one another. Next day was Monday, Mike called me and said, I'm sick of the dog. I was supposed to be giving a talk at Grace Cathedral tonight, and I can't do that. Could you just give my talk, give your talk? In my place. What, what I'm supposed to be doing in, my, in his place. So I did that, and I gave his talk, and people were pretty happy with that. And a guy walked up to me and said, my name is Art Reitz. I'm the new project director at NASA. And I'm having a conference next week at St. Simon's Island. Could you come and give your talk to my collection of invitees only conference at St. Simon's Island? Oh, my. So I did that. And next day I happened to meet Hal Putoff, who was giving a lecture on the same subject at Stanford. And I asked, told him about the conference and said, if I can get some no, some money from NASA, would you support me in joining SRI and we could create a program? And he said he would do that. So because of the meeting with Hal and the meeting with Art Reese, I went to the conference and ran into Werner Von Braun my first day. And because he did so well with my ESP game, he took me to the administrator and the administrator was aware that they almost lost a, spacecraft the previous month and then along came Edgar Mitchell so with that concatenation of surprising events all of them were necessary and the outcome was we got to start our program so what was the foundation mandate what was what was your um, thesis for the program at SRI see if you can teach people how to get in touch with their psychic abilities Okay. Well, and that, ideally, that's... if you ideally learn something about how it works, we, we didn't we didn't know. In the back of our mind, we're both physicists, so we'd like to understand how how ESP works. But at that point, we didn't know how it works at all. But we, I did, I had done work with my ESP game, and I was confident. The people who worked with that would be able to improve their ability, which they did. So that game is available today uh, 
for on your on your it's, iPhone. It's an application yeah. on your iPhone. It's a wonderful app. Oh, yo, Laura, you you use it? Yes, yes. Uh, it's a fun. It's for me. It's so fun. And you know who does best with with your um, with your app, uh, Russell, are my grandkids. <laughs> your they children can, love it. Children love the game, and it's so fun because it's it has four squares, and you just and they're different four different colors, and you just try to sense which one will have the picture behind it because only one has a picture. So when you touch it and you touch it and it does have the picture, it goes ding and the picture pops up. And so um, my granddaughter grabbed it from me one day. I was playing with it and she said, can I do it? And she grabbed my phone and it went ding, 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 ding. ding. Ah. <laughs> it was saying, you need to go to Vegas. Because <laughs> she has no inhibitions that it shouldn't work. The yeah. reason that the teaching machine is you be, you learn what it feels like at that time you're making a correct choice and you can incorporate that into your behaviors. You just learn what it feels like. You learn what it feels like when you're psychic. Mm. You remember what it's like to be a kid is what it really is because when you're a kid, you don't know any better. And when I was a kid and started going out of body at age six, um, I thought everyone did this and everyone knew about it. This was normal. It is normal, but people don't know about it. And then at age seven, I see the cartoons with Superman and he's shooting heat beams out of his eyes. And so I, I had the same approach as Russell where I've always, I've studied the technology of the other side. It's, it's very scientific to me. The, and how it relates to our science here in in uh, 3d space so for example one uh trick i use i call them psychic buoys um and i use i i leave a couple in my with my family members or i might leave one at the archers park entrance to um, the courthouse towers, so I know if anybody's going in there. Um, another example I like to use is Zack Snyder. He's making this movie that I really loved about Superman. And so I left a buoy uh, in his workspace there. And the buoy. No, wait, looks, wait, wait, wait. You described it. What do you mean you left a buoy? Uh, the buoy, it, it's a part of yourself. It's just a part of your energy. And mine are very beautiful. They look like um, when you pull up to the bank window and you put your money in the thing and you send it through and kind of looks like that capsule. The little you, drawer, okay. Not the drawer, but the uh, the little tube. Oh, okay, you know. okay, okay. Yeah, the, yeah, it's got that tube and you send it through and that, that's kind of what mine, but they're very beautiful. They're made of light and energy. So, of course, they're very beautiful. But So I leave that near Zach and then... I'm not really spying on them. I, I don't like to you know invade anyone's privacy, but I just want to know you can program the buoy to alert you if anything cool about the upcoming you know Justice League movie. <laughs> so it's kind of like a tripwire or Arthur's pyramid on the moon when the astronauts climbed up in his little novel uh, short story. And, you know, tried to get inside where the pyramid force field was. And then the signal was sent to alert them that humans from Earth had achieved spaceflight and made it to the moon and 
triggered their beacons. These are like little beacons you're leaving, psychic beacons. Yeah, my brothers will go, wow, I just got off the plane. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't say that, but <laughs> yeah, okay. I know. That's, uh, so that I know that they're got to where they are safely or, or that kind of thing. So you can use them. There's different uses for it, but it's, it's technology on the other side. You have this different technology where it's all mental driven. And I always experimented from a young boy. I would imitate Superman and some of these other heroes like Space Ghost, for example. Can I replicate that? In my out-of-body state, I, I actually look like, you know, I'm wearing the cape and leotards when I get these emergency calls. So can I have beams shoot out of my hands? And um, so that, that's um, how I, I got into the technology part of it. When I'm doing a remote viewing experiment with a novice person, I try and keep it very simple because I'm afraid if they have an out-of-body experience where they're bringing with them their emotionality, sensitivity, sexuality, then they might have a bad experience. And they go back to the management and say, tell the management, Targ separated my consciousness <laughs> from my body, and I can't get myself back together, and that would be the end of the program. Hmm. Do, and do you ever have, have you ever had a bad experience as a result of being out of body? Great question. I, I have, yes. And it was um, when you're out too long, you get a tug from your physical body, body saying, it's time to get back here or else. So I ignored the call and I'm, you know, flying around high above the earth. I don't want to go back. It's very flying is one of the most ecstatic joys you can experience. So I get another tug and it's very urgent and dire. So I think of my body lying back in bed, express the desire to return. I mean, this happens in a split second. So I, I return to my body very quickly. And <clears throat> instead of normally, I just shoot right into my body. I meld with it very easily. And I, then I open my eyes after a moment of acclimation, but this time I, my body was like, it was made out of rock. I, I ran into it and I bounced off of it because the rigor mortis was starting to set in and I could not get back in. I panicked. As Russ said, you take your emotions with you. Wait a minute. Rigor mortis, you mean you died? I yeah when you go out of the way yeah you're you're on the verge of death anyway so you don't want to be out too long so I I got very scared and panicked and it's what you don't you don't want to do that but I calmed down I floated just an inch above my body just like I'm lying on my back on the and slowly but surely I got my right foot in my left foot it took a long time. But eventually, I got back inside my body, and I said, don't ever ignore the call again. <laughs> okay, big, big question. Why the time limit? Where is the clock coming from? The clock is coming from leaving your, 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 just your heart, your organs, your, your brain and your heart need to, op they operate at a very low level when you're out and about. So you have a finite amount of time just because the physical nature of your 
physical body. So entropy is continuing. If you take the energy of the rest of you away, it will eventually just run down. The body will die. Yeah. Well, entropy will win, which is disorganization. The, you know, nothing there to keep it going. It needs the conscious feedback. The the consciousness is off gallivanting. The brain has no, the body has no feedback to know, to drive it. Which goes along with my idea that the life is a hyperdimensional connection between other dimensions and 3D. That's a pretty interesting theory. I know. No, I've, I've had out-of-body out of, my whole life as well. I don't know. This line from George Goldberg. Have you ever felt, Go ahead. Go ahead. John, have you ever felt that people were uh, aware that you were... Oh, great question. Uh, in, in, their, ...in their space? Uh, on occasion, yes. Most people know. But um, sometimes when I'm called, uh, I have this knack... I call it the tesseract knack because let's say I get an emergency call. I go there. It's somebody who's troubled. They've just passed away. They don't know they're dead and they're in this limbo. So, and they're repeating this pattern and they can't get out of this rut. So I point out the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I'll say, look, and it's time for you to go look and they, they look they don't see it. i go look again so you have to look um askance and it's like you're inside a tesseract and to see into the fourth dimension you you look askance uh from the third so well, but when you say then, askance is this kind of like averted vision where at night if you try to looking directly at something you don't see it if it's very dim but if you look to the side with your peripheral vision, you can see it? That is a good way to put it. And then the soul will see it, and they're like, oh, and they go into the tunnel and toward the light, and their mission accomplished. But sometimes, yes, I've had people who are in the room. If I'm in a room with a dead person and I'm showing them the, the tunnel and the light, the person in that, uh, a living person, will sense me because they will look at me and I know they're looking right at me. Hmm. Kind of sounds like Robert Morningstar and his mantids. They see it. He sees us. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, have you visited people who are not dying, not dead uh, through out of body and they, they see you, they recognize you and then you talk to them the next day on text or email or whatever, and they say, what were you doing in my room at 4.30 in the morning? Well, I will do it in a clandestine nature, so I will visit them in a dream, and I will do something, and then, let's say it's my girlfriend. She's a good test subject, so um, if she wakes up the next day and say, I had this dream Mm -hmm. where somebody came to me, and they did this, and this happened, then I know that I... You know, that's my feedback that I was there and she's verifying this. And I did, I don't tell her ahead of time or that kind of thing. John, have you ever tried to reach out to someone who's not in 3D? Remember, I've had this four year ongoing set of bizarre, outrageous experiences with Robin. 
A couple happened just the other night. She's leaving physical objects, incredibly meaningful, symbolic, specific physical objects. Uh, And it ain't the mice. It's her. And what's your question? Oh, have I ever tried to find someone who's passed away? Well, if you want to use that term, okay. I I, I prefer not physically here because they're somewhere. Well, yes. You know the Um, old joke, everybody has to be somewhere? Well, she's somewhere. She's just not here. There's a a woman came to me at a book signing, and she says, I'm raised a Catholic. My son died in a horrible car accident a year ago, and I like to believe that he's alive somewhere, his soul, but I don't – really, I don't know. And she started crying, and it was very emotional, and I could feel him in the the space with us. We were in a bookstore, and I – so I say, don't ever think he's dead. He's very much alive, and he's going to come to you in a dream very soon uh, to let you know he's okay. And she stopped crying, and she actually smiled, and she said, he came to me last night in my dream. And I said, oh, um, what was, you know. Wait a minute, this is really- while you're having the conversation that she's crying. And she's crying, and so she says, yes, he came to me last night in a dream. And I said, what was his message? They, they usually have a message. And I said, what was his message? And she said, he told me to come here today to see you. Oh, cool. And Russell, communication. Russell, in your vast yeah. experiments at SRI, did you start out doing control experiments on sensing somebody in some location to test the, you know, limits and how it works and all that, and you wound up tripping over someone who was not here? No, that, that did not happen. Well, our, if your focus is on doing a particular thing, if, if you're sitting there with a viewer and you say, I want you to find where this guy, Joe, where, where is Joe now is the question we would ask. And so they, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't stumble upon some other person. The, the remote viewer is in such strange territory that he's trying very hard to do what you tell him. Hmm. Okay, we are at the uh, top of the hour, so everyone hold it there. My guests this morning are Russell Targ and Laurie Williams and John Womack, and as you can hear. John has suddenly found his voice and is contributing at a very interesting level. We're going to continue this. If you want to join us uh, when we come back, I will give you the uh, numbers if you want to join in. If you've got some kind of a remote viewing experience you want to share or if you have an out-of-body experience you want to share. I mean, we're looking at what's called a continuum. Hyperdimensional experiences are not limited in one small category. You're on the other side of midnight. We're playing bumper music tonight from famous spy movies, particularly the Bond films. We shall return. Yeah. 
so he strikes like The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night going now into Sunday. We're past the witching hour here in the Lanham and Shaman. It's been much warmer lately, and actually today it was 60 degrees. It's about 35 outside right now, and it's still a little chilly in the studio. Need a couple of heaters. No heat down here. But uh, the conversation is warm and fascinating and uh if you want to join it, um, this is our number. If you have a remote viewing story or you want to ask three really sterling veterans of remote viewing, one a virtual pioneer of the field, other two seasoned professionals, area code 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. We, in fact, do have a caller on the line from area code 727. Now, a lot of times people, uh, they tune in to blog talk to listen, but they don't want to participate in the show. So I have no idea. Uh, Keith, maybe we can find out whether that person really wants to uh, be on the air or is just uh, kind of listening to the program in the background. Um, In the meantime, uh, let me get back to my guest of the morning. Let's see, where do I want to go from here? Okay, so you you wound up through this series of serendipitous developments setting up this program at SRI. Uh, I guess this is the point where I should ask you in the program, what were the five major things that this program found out that you did not know before? And are they being put into practice either by the intelligence community or by people doing classes like Lori's doing, or people like John. And uh, we do have a question. So let's answer that one first, and then we'll go to Stephen, who has a question. Russell? 
Yes, I'm here. Okay. Um, what were the five things that the SRI program taught you that you didn't know before about remote viewing in terms of how it works, how it can work, what it's useful for, the limits of what it cannot be used for, et cetera? Well, I learned that almost all people have psychic abilities. Okay. It's not a it's not, not a unique ability. It's like a musical ability. There's some people, almost anybody can learn to play the piano, but it really takes talent to get to Carnegie Hall. So a lot of people uh, can do surprisingly good remote viewing, but there are very few English swans or Pat Price. Hmm. Uh, we all, we also learned that looking into the distance is no more difficult than looking across the street, and we're confident of that. That you can look uh, six thousand miles to China to watch an atomic bomb test, and the fact that it's six thousand miles away doesn't make it any more difficult. Similarly, the fact that it's three days in the future doesn't make it any more difficult. So looking into the distance, looking to the future is just as easy as doing something contemporaneous. Hmm. I would say. Okay. Um, what about the making money part? I mean, if this really could be used by ordinary people to kind of supplant their income, it would create such a sense of freedom and give people such abilities to decide on a career and not just a job, to find the right niche, to expand artistically, emotionally, temperamentally. In other words, it could change people's lives if they could, every once in a while, if they needed some extra money, just kind of, you know, do it on the market. Well, that's really a Laurie question. My feeling is that making money with ESP requires uh, some special temperamental capabilities so you don't freak out when the money starts to appear. <laughs> you mean fear of success? That, that's right. Hmm. Okay, Lori. Lori. Unmuting helps. I'm sorry, I apologize. I had my mute button on. In teaching controlled remote viewing, which is a written protocol that allows anyone, anywhere, to separate mere imagination from true psychic perceptions. And it, the structure of CRV replaces an interviewer when someone doesn't have that luxury. But it also, if you happen to have someone who's monitoring you, we found that monitored sessions tend to be much more accurate and much better. But when it comes to making money, you asked about making money. I yes. really feel like the the key, if you think about how many times you might have something spontaneous happen where you suddenly the phone rings and you think you know who it is and it turns out to be that person or you think of someone and then they suddenly reach out to you, everybody has those things happen throughout their lives. But what if you could control those things? What if you could on demand get information that you needed when you needed it? Or what if you could even influence yourself, your future self could influence your present self and you could access information. You know how they say hindsight is always twenty twenty. What if you could reach forward and access the you that knows whether you should have chosen the Jeep or the uh, two-seater sports car? 
and a year from now you actually accessed yourself in the future and said, well, how do you feel about the car you're driving and which one I'm at the dealership, which car should I buy? These are the kinds of things that students are learning now. They're learning how to make better decisions using remote viewing. They're learning, and some of those decisions end up being financially beneficial, better career choices, better relationship choices. So that's what we're finding is that, that this, uh, the uses and the applications for controlled remote viewing are limitless and uh, allows anyone, that's why the word control is part of it, because it allows you to control your own psychic abilities. And when people say, well, why would I want to control my psychic abilities? I'm like, why do you want to go <laughs> learn how to drive your car? Why not just let the car drive itself? You know, I mean, we, we all, we, it's, it's, it makes common sense that you would want to develop any abilities that you have to make your life better because that's what everyone wants. We all want a, the best life we can possibly be living. Hmm. When I say it requires a different temperament, uh, I completely agree with what Laurie said, that learning controlled remote viewing uh, allows you to increase your success rate with whatever kind of remote viewing you're doing. Uh, in order to do uh, associated remote viewing, uh, means that you've got to be able to put $10,000 on the table and leave that on the table, depending on whether a guy sees a pancake or a desk, deck of cards. And many people aren't aren't willing to do that. Well, it's self-selecting. Those that are would, those that aren't won't. So I'm, I'm still wondering if there if there's a whole niche where people could as we move through these changes of the physics, have you noticed, Lori, that more people are able to do it easier? And again, the same quest question to Russell. I don't know how active you are in setting up current experiments, uh, but, but Lori, you're kind of got your feet in the, in the real world. Do you find yeah. more people are gravitating to this, having more success, or is it that you're just reaching a lot more people? I am reaching a lot more people and they are having greater success. I think it might be due to morphic resonance, you know, the, like the hundredth monkey theory. The more people that learn to do something a certain way, the easier it becomes to do it. And uh, comparing notes with Lynn Buchanan, who's still teaching, believe it or not, at, at 80, almost 84 years old, in comparing notes, we find that students are grasping this so much quicker and they're, they're doing phenomenal things right out of the gate, you know, just amazing things. And, uh, you know, just a, a quick story. I was teaching a woman from Homeland Security, and her target was a photograph of a very young Jane Goodall, the ape lady. Mm. And she was 30 years old. The, 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 so this is a picture in an envelope, right? She's um, a young Jane Goodall, 30 years old, offering a banana to a monkey, a chimpanzee in front of her. And behind her was was like a roof on stilts, you know, just, it wasn't a tent, but it was like a tent. It had a canvas roof and there was a table with some, with a tablecloth and some equipment. This brand new person right off the street from Homeland Security went and described Jane Goodall to a T, including what she was wearing, her hair, her age, um, which that, that there was this black furry thing in front of her <laughs> and she was offering it food. And that, then she starts, she says, and I think there's a house behind her. And I said, we'll go into that, which you perceive as a house and describe. And she said, Oh, it has no walls. 
Uh, and I said, okay, move up to the top of it and look down and describe what you see. So she started sketching. She said, I feel like I'm looking at linoleum and I'm sketching a pattern on the linoleum. Well, when she was all done, I thought she'd be so excited that she had described Jane Goodall so well. Instead, she said, oh, my God, look, I drew the pattern that's on the tablecloth, on the table, in the thing. And I said, oh, yeah, you did. She drew the exact pattern. And she got really excited. She goes, that means I was there. I was actually there. And I said, well, I don't want to freak you out. But not only were you there, but you were there 50 years ago. And so, so time travel, the aspect of time, when it oh. has to do with, with remote viewing is so phenomenal that it's one of my favorite subjects to teach is how time works. And so students, one, one other thing I wanted to mention, Richard, too, is that years ago I was attending a marketing conference with a bunch of, you know, I think there were like 500 people there. They were all wannabe entrepreneurs, not a woo-woo thought in their minds, right? <laughs> Never thought about anything psychic. And um, our, our task over the five days was to learn how to express what you do in a brief way and then you know how to how to pitch something essentially and here i have all these people and the third the fifth day we had to i had to pitch a, an imaginary product to all this big group of people that i didn't know and when i finished i and, and my imaginary product was a was a dvd course of remote viewing and when i finished everybody was pulling out their checkbooks and they were like do you really have this <laughs> wow who had no, you know, who were there to learn marketing, had never thought a psychic thought in their lives. And that was a big eye-opener for me. That was when I realized that I really could reach a lot of people who'd never heard of this. Um, it was like Henry Ford said, if I asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? But, uh -huh. but instead, if they know about this amazing technique that can improve their lives, who wouldn't want it, right? Well, you're doing a wonderful job, Laurie. I'm really happy to well, hear what you're doing. Now, I have a Thanks. question that I would like to ask Laurie and, um, and, and Joe. And I've never, I have a book in my hand. I should make you actually describe my book. The book is called Psychic Sexuality by Ingo Swan. And, he, <laughs> and he's talking about sex on the astral plane, uh, which has been known for many years. Principally, it's a concomitant of out-of-body experiences. Uh, Bob Monroe, who wrote Journeys Out of the Body, met his wife through visiting her psychically. And Alistair Crowley was a famous 20th century magician who frequently would write about his uh, psychic interactions on the astral plane. And I wonder if either of you two experienced remote viewers could tell me anything about that. I Well, I I could, but I don't want to talk about it on the radio. <laughs> oh, hey, it's late at night. Nobody's listening, as Connie Chung said. Just tell it to me. Just, you know, just you and me. <laughs> well, well, I can I, throw I, in I, something, uh, Richard, that yeah, I... Yeah, go ahead. Probably, you go first. Probably different. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean... We come from our parents. We're born in the spirit world. We are created when the, these two entities come together who are our parents, and uh, there's a flash of light, and now you've got a little dirty snowball of a kid soul, and they send us off to Earth school, or there are many schools throughout the galaxy, but yeah, we're at Earth school, and you asked before, Richard, a question about 
how do we what kind of people do this and for me i it's all about the spirituality everything's about the spirit world with me because so i sum up how some where somebody is on that path they've lived 5,000 lives there at this point this is their goal this is their mission um, so you can see where people become teachers or uh, you know these kind of things uh, first responders or you know you there's a spiritual aspect to life of course so um, I when I meet people I sum them spiritually and I I get a feel for where they are on that path but as far as the sex part, yeah, our parents have sex on the astral plane, and that's where we come from. <laughs> you mean that's simultaneous with what's going on in three dimensions? Uh, no, they have us in the spirit world, and then when we're ready, um, they send us to Earth. It takes a while to get ready because we just have no thought about Anything. Yeah, I was actually not asking about your parents, but I'm asking you as a out-of-body practitioner where you can bring with you your sexuality or emotionality if you feel like it. And I wonder if you've uh, encountered that in your long life as an out-of-body practitioner. Yeah, it's certainly uh, the expression of sex in, in 3D space is a very shallow um manifestation of something that is glorious and joyous and I, I guess in the 3d world we're trying to recapture that because in the spirit world when you join with somebody um, you join them literally you go inside of each other and you become one so yes it is a very uh, well the whole idea of, of, of twin flames you know it's like I mean I've really felt like only half a person now that Robin is not here in 3d it's really awful so anyway, we've got a bunch of people who have a whole bunch of questions. Are you up for answering a few questions, guys? Yes. Sure. Okay. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to put you on the air, area code 727, so you know you're on the air. Uh, you are on the air. Okay, thank you. Um, has anybody done any experiments with a functional MRI, not a regular MRI that just shows the anatomy, but a functional MRI? that shows what type part of the brain is working at the time uh, to see what's actually happening in the brain where people are remote viewing. Mm, great and a question. Second, and a second question I have, um, question. I'm, ad I'm adopted. Could remote viewing help me find my, my natural parents when no legal yes. or any other? I, I participated in a remote viewing experiment, Stephen. Uh, not an experiment, but a project in which we helped a man uh, find his birth mother. And it was it was an exciting a very exciting project. Um, so yes, it is definitely something that uh, has the potential for helping you find her. Stephen, would you like me to put you in touch off the air with Laurie so you can talk about this more in depth? Yeah, that would be cool. Okay. Well, send me your email. Um, okay. You know, Enterprise Mission Two Thousand One at Yahoo or the the okay. uh, connecting on the other side of midnight, and I will put you guys in touch. Okay. It's that it's that Leo. Uh, you know the one that's under Leo right, that I sent right. you before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. And yeah, what about the MRI thing? Is is that been done? Steve Russell. I think people have done functional MRI as a way of telling whether you're doing analysis or doing remote viewing. Uh, my friend Ed May 
who, who used to be at SRI, and um, other people who have fMRI machines. So what you're saying, the answer is yes, people are doing that. And the extent to which it works, it allows you to set the fMRI can tell whether you're doing analysis or whether you're pre-associating. Monroe Institute as well has done some very good work in that area. The Monroe Institute in Virginia. Okay. Stephen, is that it? Uh, That's it for tonight. And I really appreciate your uh, uh, getting the information to me. Excellent. We will talk soon. God bless you. Okay. Likewise. Okay. Um, Don who is at Area 818, that's obviously in Hawaii, I think, has a question. Don, you're on the air. No, it's in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. okay. I have a question for Lori. Um, I'd really like to attend one of your classes. I've been wanting to do this since Art Bell had people on. And the reason is because three days before 9-11, I had a quickie daydream. I mean, it was the most vivid thing I'd ever seen of what I thought was a dirty avalanche or or smoke from a volcano. But I didn't see any any buildings falling. But then I also, in the dream, went up above the smoke as the buildings were falling and looked down and saw a spinning vortex of the smoke. And I've been having little things like that happen all my life, so I figure maybe it's about time I... Take a class on it. <laughs> yeah, it's about time that you learn to control it and 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 really dive in and explore it. Richard, can I yeah. add a story about nine eleven? Yeah, just hang on one second. Um, Don, do you want to connect privately with Lori about classes and all that? I presume, sure. In your biography, you've got a website where people can go and contact. Oh yeah, we have. We have a website called Intuitive Specialist. That's an S at the end of specialist. IntuitiveSpecialist.com. I have a free class that you can take to see if, if, if my teaching style suits you or if you like the, the structure of CRV. Um, we also have – I have a lot of free classes, and there's even a tab on the website that says free stuff. Yeah, there, all uh, those links are, are in your bio on the web page. Okay? That's right. They are you're on your web page for sure. Yep. So, John, yes, yeah. um, I started, I'm very connected to that event, 9-11. I started writing about it in January of 2019 when my spirit guide tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, it's time to, to write, get busy. So I did, and I was nearing the end of that book when 9-11 happened, and it happened on my birthday. So each yeah. year since... I go there uh, for the morning ceremonies uh, out of body, and over the years I have helped um, these dead people, or again, they don't know they're dead, and they're caught in this quagmire of grief and this kind of thing, and in 2019, uh, something very cool happened. I go to 9-11 for the morning ceremonies. I'm looking down from, you know, 70 or 80 stories in the air. And for the first time, there are no lingering dead souls. They've all been returned. They've all gone home. And 
I don't usually go down to ground level because it's pretty mucky, muddy, crappy place. But I go down to ground level and I'm floating through the people, the crowd, as they are doing the ceremony. And it was a wonderful experience of joy and love. The pain had gone away and the anguish and all this kind of imprint now the imprint is love and it's a very positive and so for the first time in almost 20 years that uh, ground zero is clear mm. oh, that's, that's great thank you for sharing that story. yeah now why do you think this has happened now John what, what, what turning point have we reached culturally between realms where this is now possible? Well, I think the galactic alignment had something to do with it because it... The changing of the physics, in other words. The changing of the physics has brought many of these things to bear, yes. Hmm. Um, We've got a couple of minutes till the bottom of the hour. Russell, did you find that time of day or time of year... had more or less effect on the success of the remote viewing experiments? No, I didn't. People are able to do this uh, morning, noon, or night. I'm doing I'm doing a series now with a friend of mine in Northern California where I call her around noon every Friday to describe the object on my desk. And I'm doing that. This is now a publication because I, I know the answer, so it's not double blind, but I'm pretty cautious. I just say, I've got something on my desk. Could you tell me about it? And it's not and a that, And that has been working extremely well. So I give her immediate feedback via Zoom, so she immediately can tell what the object is. And I think that the quality of the feedback often affects the quality of the remote viewing. Hmm. Because I know that I know yeah. that uh, my precognitive dreams are often much sharper than any other remote viewing that I see. They're often uh, shockingly accurate matches for the feedback that I get a couple of hours later. You mean like so the train, I, and then the and then the loop story? That's right. So it's obvious to me that the dream that I'm having has been caused by the thing that I see at a later time. Hmm. So there's your some... spirit guide... Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, well, your sorry. spirit guides are part of this, too. So I, I'm going to go out back and go for a walk in the woods. I open my back door, and I see myself coming back from my walk being shot dead. And I... I shut the door. I'm like, what the heck? And this is my spirit guide warning me. If you listen, they, they're over your shoulder all the time. So I open the door. There's me getting shot again. Somebody's shooting me from like behind my perspective. I can't see. So I find out, um, I say, all right, I, I won't go for a walk. I'll go fix the window outside. It's a beautiful, warm day. It was late November, Indian summer. So I go outside. I'm filling the window. And I fix it. I go back in the house. And I hear this knock on my my door and I look and it's the neighbor and he's waving a gun around. He's like, come on. Go. I, I go out there. He's like, somebody's try, trying to break in your house. And, and like, what the hell? We go over to the window. And he's like, Oh, he took off. He went, he must've went back in the woods. I'm like, dude, that was me. 
He was going to gun me down, mistaking me. Thinking for... you were a burglar. Yes. Oh, my. I'll tell you what. Hold it there. Hold it there. We have more calls. We will get to them when we return. We'll last half hour on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we will return as soon as I hit the right little button here. So, oh, dear, 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 dear. Uh, Pop-ups, why do they happen? Good heavens. Okay. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight with my guests Russell Targ, Lori Williams, and John Womack. And our subject is remote viewing. And we've kind of wanted all over the place. You know, we talked about how it got established through incredible synchronicity. And I would say none of those events, Russell, were coincidental. You were supposed to at some level, establish this as a field of science at SRI. Just like we were supposed to, many decades later, establish the independent Mars investigation of extraterrestrial artifacts at that same SRI. Okay, uh, Robert, 
is on the line from New York, Robert Morningstar. You all know his voice, his background. Robert has a question for Russell. So without further ado, you are on the air, Robert. Hello, Richard. Hello, Russell, John, uh, Lisa. Uh, nice to hear the show. It's, we waited a long time for it uh, after so many um, glitches. I wanted to answer Russell's question about sexuality. It's a very important element in amplifying. Maybe that's the amplifier that uh, you know we've been looking for. I, um, I developed my own uh, psychic and remote viewing skills through uh, the oriental ways of uh, kundalini yoga and Chinese tantra. And the most powerful experience in remote viewing that I ever had was a result of a tantric initiation in 1974. Um, thank you for mentioning my encounter with the mantids. I'd like to share that with uh, Russell at another time. But I wanted to say, Russell, you and I must have crossed paths in the 1970s. We were both um, residents of the West Side, and we both went to the Institute for Psychic Research I wonder if you remember Dr. Carlos Osis. He was uh, he was the head of that institute, and I'll tell you when I met him and shared my experiences with him, he really spooked me. He gave me the creeps because he looked at me like a specimen under the microscope, and uh, he really reminded me of the classical mad scientist. Uh, with regard to psychic sexualism or sexuality which Ingo Swan espoused, it is very important. Uh, the more potent your sexual force, the uh, greater your abilities. Uh, so the practice of uh, Chinese yoga, I'm in my 50th year of Tai Chi this year and uh, celebrating that. And my teacher, Professor Cheng Manching, taught me deep meditations, breathing meditations, which opened up. Uh, I already had it since childhood like you did. But um, I'm wondering if you re- recommend or if you ever use the hemisync techniques of Robert Monroe to uh, teach people remote viewing or used it yourself. Hello? Are we on? Russell? <laughs> we are on. Russell. Yeah. I think unmuting is good. Hello, Russell. I'm not hearing anything. It's weird. Richard, one of the reasons I called primarily was to let you know that about half an hour ago, the the live stream went at the same time that the uh, telephone. I said the live the live stream went dead at the same time that the telephone line went dead. So somebody may be playing tricks with uh, with communications here. Yeah. But can anybody else Jonathan or Lisa? It's Lori. Lori, I'm sorry, Lori. Nice to meet you. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, that was I wanted to make that comment about uh, the potency of one's sexual energy is also okay, very important. I, uh, Russell is back on. Oh, okay, great. Russell, are you there? I'm here. Yeah. Now, all right. I, you, I, I see your your camera. Okay. Yeah. Could, did you hear Robert's question? Uh, I heard part. I heard part. I was. I wanted to know from Robert if he's had experience reaching out to another person uh, for, to make sexual contact, presumably yes. a, a, a willing uh, Yes, indeed. Friend. 
Yes, indeed. It, uh, it, that was, uh, I was saying that the most powerful experiences that I, I have had in my development involved uh, applications and development of Kundalini yoga and Chinese tantric, tantric yoga. And that was one that uh, took me back to the beginning of time, to be quite frankly. But uh, I was wondering if you remember Dr. Carlos Osis at the Institute for Psychical Research. That was uh, He was the man who took over after Jung passed away. And he was quite a character, the most brilliant blue-eyed. Carlos Osis worked for Eileen Garrett, as far as I remember. Yeah, that's when I met him over there. And uh, I said he really spooked me because when I told him my experiences, he looked at me like a very good specimen to talk under the microscope. But I, the other question was, have you ever used the hemisync technique of Robert Monroe, to whom I owe a lot? Robert Monroe explained a lot of things to me about the... Yes, I did. I was. Uh, I visited... I knew them both very well, but one time I did go up and spent a morning in the box doing hemisync. It was my only time. And I was able to visit a girlfriend far away uh, yes. and had a very, very clear picture of where she was and what she was doing. Yes. So, so I would say that they have been, in my experience with that one trial, uh, with a very, very clear, successful remote viewing. Yes, uh, I... Um... I was separated from my paramour by circumstances uh, back in the in the 70s, and that was one of the first times that uh, we were able to merge. And I say merge because it's a soul souls interlace, you might say, and amplifies the uh, the power of the force. And since we're talking about the psychic realm and um, the afterlife, I'll share with you. For many years, I taught a very lovely English lady who was married. And we were very, very attracted to each other. But I respect marriage, and so we, we never went uh, in any way uh, in the sexual direction. But then she passed away. For a month afterwards, her spirit kept visiting me and, you know, might say, disturbing my sleep, uh, a poltergeist type of activity. And I finally, after a month, uh, she really appeared to me, and uh, the love that I had for her was really there. And I remembered that the marriage oath says, till death do us part. And I remember saying, well, death has parted them. And so we did have uh, sexual intercourse. After that, her soul went off to heaven like a rocket. Once that was culminated and fulfilled, spirit was at rest and uh, it seemed to me she went straight to heaven. The other thing is one of the main blockages to developing psychic skills and remote viewing is skepticism. And in science, our society has uh, imposed uh, skepticism on the general public and the Catholic Church as well warns you about uh, dealing with uh, psychic events. So those are two uh, two obstacles that have to be overcome. Uh, inhibitions about having a strong sexual power and skepticism. So, well, thank you. Thank you for the program. It's a wonderful to contact. Thank we you met very happy to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Richard. Have a good night. You too.
Okay, uh, we've got Ron, who always has interesting questions. Mr. Gerbron, you are on the air. Oh, hello, all. Um, Hi there. Russell, talk. Yes. Uh, Russell, it's such a pleasure to hear you. I've heard so much about you, and we never cross paths. Could we turn uh, up Ron's volume? Yeah, we can't hear Uh-oh. him. Well, it's it's very low bass. I don't understand why it's all very bass. I'm turning up his his gain. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I hadn't been I hadn't been sound checked because I just you know haven't been on the show. Uh, the uh, I had a question about remote influencing, as some call it. Remote yeah. what? Influencing. Remote. Remote influence. Okay. Let me try it this way. Is What's this your better? question? It's still very uh, muffled. Go ahead. Let me try it now. Is this a, Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, that's better. I can hear you. Russell? Okay, Will there's nothing. Know? Yeah, I've got signal and everything else, and I don't know so why. I can, uh, I can sit here and visualize something, and, ha- and you will have an experience of what I'm visualizing. So in a certain sense, I'm affecting you at a distance. But there's a lot of literature on distant hypnosis, for example. Right. Yeah, I wasn't asking. Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm familiar with what it is, and I've experienced an awful lot of it. I just wondered how, if you link it up with uh, remote viewing. Because there's, um, I don't know, I have a really strange and unique to me and for me uh, remote viewing experience once some time ago I was up I was outside staring at the moon it was a lovely moon and I was just looking at it I didn't have any binoculars or anything and uh, I focused on one section and all of a sudden just like snapping your fingers I zoomed in on there and this is just my naked eyes you know and I was there I mean I was like 50 feet above it Yeah, have you ever heard I, of anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I think that reality is not at all what we think it is. And uh, I've had many of those kinds of experiences myself. When it comes to remote influencing, though, which was your question initially, um, we teach yes. a class called CRV Medical Applications. And in that class, we use an, a really interesting technique to be able to access someone else on, on a subconscious level and encourage them to heal themselves. Um, and it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing class, but technically that is a form of remote influencing. What I we, got my brother to quit smoking, Lori. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. But the light bulb yeah. has to want to change. He had to want to stop smoking, right? That was right. the tough part. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the, the thing is, but it's something that you're not – most people necess- wouldn't necessarily be aware of the source, you know, or of the fact that it was an outside force acting upon them. That's the uh, – uh, I had an experience with that once. Someone was actually trying to influence me, and they weren't even very far away. You know, we were talking, and there was this for- – I could feel it in my head, you know, that – they were trying to get me to talk about one thing and not talk about another. And it was, uh, it didn't, I don't think that was like a spirit guide or something like that warning me off because it wasn't something that I shouldn't say or anything like that. It was just they, they were trying to direct 
the conversation. And, you know, I could, I could feel it. I could read it as that. And um, that's, that's the kind of thing I was talking about because I think that it's, there's more telepathy involved in this than um, people may think. Uh, I may have missed yeah, it. You, you are garbling, you're garbling quite seriously, Ron. We can barely make, make you out. Well, there's a, very there's a book that's very apropos of what you're asking called Distant Mental Influence by William Broad, B-R-A-U-D. Oh, he's a science writer at the New York Times. Now, it's another different, different one. This is this is a psychologist. Oh, okay. Book is called Distant Mental Influence. And was he involved with your experiment with SRI? No, he was. Uh, he was not. But he did a lot of other pioneering work. He he showed that that he could sit in the laboratory and affect the brain waves or the heart rate of a experimental person who's in a distant room. Oh. The, the distant person would be recorded on TV, and he could sit in his office and affect her heart rate or her galvanic skin response just by looking at the chart that was my, and trying to change them. They're going to in, increase them or decrease them. And there's a whole book of his published papers called Distant Mental Influence. Okay, how so, do you spell his last name, please? William Broad, right? B-R-O-A-D? Yes. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. so cool. Okay, one, yeah, one last. B-R-A-U-D. Uh, U-D, okay. B-R-A-U-D. Yeah. Uh, the title will probably help if I... Uh, can uh, make it make it to Amazon well, someplace. Mental influence. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Oh, I'm going to look for that. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, Excellent. Uh, the one last thing is, I have a comment about the um, uh, raising someone's uh, libidinous inf uh, urges through <laughs> uh, remote viewing or something like that. That is incredibly easy to do. I am not going to spell it out on the air. I don't care how late at night it is. Not everybody probably should know how to do this. But uh, this is something that Crowley was, um, or Crowley, as people like to say these days. Alistair uh, Crowley. Was, yeah. Yes. Uh, that was something he was very interested in. And aside from the most of the fluff that's attached to it, it's incredibly easy. And it works for people that have never given any thought about this sort of thing at all. And it's, uh, yeah, the effects are quite remarkable. But uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's well, more... Well, I have biography, more... and he tells what happened, but he doesn't tell what he was doing. Yeah. You mean like well, a I... manual? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pretty much other people that were connected with uh, with Golden Dawn and the other societies of the time had something to do with it. I had an aunt, a great aunt, actually, that lived right down the street from him <laughs> in Scotland and used to go to his parties. And she she was she talked. Uh, she had quite a bit to say about him uh, when I met her. And the only time I actually met her, I was like 11 at the time. 
precocious, but only, you know, 11 or 12. And I said, I don't know who that is. Never heard of him. I said, oh, you will. You will. She said. And um, so it's it kind of ran in the family, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say there is such a thing. But if people want to look it up, look up sex magic. Never mind trying to tie it into remote viewing. It's uh, ah. Other than that, it would all be personal stories, which there isn't time for and nobody wants to hear them anyway. Um, but it's been a great pleasure listening to this show. Thank you for it. Hello? Did I lose my connection again? Oh, dear. You know, it's now come back on. I know. Um, I'm, I've got a nice, strong signal. I don't know what's happening. Okay, so sorry, everybody. You're going through the stream. The button's working. I'm working on it. I got to come back in the room and guess what they saw in their mind. You only hear me on the phone. Wow, I hear all this stuff all around me on the phone, but it's not very loud. Let me see if I can pick up the sh- Hi, Keith. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. We, we Rich lost power in the studio or something. Oh, you see what happens? This is a more remote in- influencing. Um, I got to try. I'm, I'm trying to pick this up, but it, it's it's not easy. Okay, well, concentrate on getting the show finished, and if you want to call me back so I can listen to the, uh, so I can participate in the after party, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, if I get this straight. All right, later. Okay, but let me go. Yeah, let me go for now. You got enough complication there. I, uh, okay. Yes. Contacting your daughter who had crossed over years before, and she left you some kind of message, as I recall. Oh, I'd love to hear that, too. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, Elizabeth, is a psychiatrist, highly intelligent, linguist, psychiatrist, uh, died at age 40. And a couple of, well, and, and, and I hadn't heard from her since, but, uh, a good friend of mine I was writing with who was looking for a job in Durham, North Carolina. She had a PhD in health education. And she was being interviewed by a physician and his nurse educator. And um, my friend had just sat down and started doing an interview. And the nurse said, I'm sorry, I apologize. I have to interrupt this interview. You, you know somebody with long dark hair who died recently. And my friend Jane said, yes, I, I know such a person. And the nurse said, well, she is very eager that I give you a message to give to uh, my father. I want you to tell, tell, tell my father that I still remember
So I, I said to Russ, the you know, if I find somebody has is uh, pirating our, our show, Limitless Mind, which you can see on Prime Video, um, you know, I, I could sometimes track their computer, and that's the end of it. Hmm. Oh, we I, we need to become friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what we're doing. Okay, we've got about uh, five minutes till the end of the show. It's amazing how rapidly this has gone. Russell, I need to have you come back so we have more time to talk about more I things. Ask, I was going to ask you, did you get a chance to look at the uh, draft copy of Third Eye Spies? Did that make it to you? It made it to me. Thank you so much, Russell. And I enjoyed appearing in Third Eye Spies documentary. Thank you oh, so much I'm, for you. I'm happy you could do that with us. And I'll and I'll, have, and I'll have books in April. Russell's book is coming out in April. I'm going to share it with all my followers. We're pretty Thank excited. I, I I think I think it's nice. I'm getting particularly good reviews. It surprises me. People normally give me anyway. I'm very happy with the reception that it's getting. People like all the pictures. There are links at on the other side of midnight on the guest page in each of the bios to their home pages where you can get their books, uh, where they're speaking, uh, and of course how you can sign up for Lori's classes. Uh, Russell, what's in the immediate future for you? What's well, in the immediate is uh, to, to help promote this book. This will be my, my tenth and last book. And I'm uh, going to do a little publicity for that. Okay. And the name of the book again, so no one misses Third, it. Third Eye Spies. Oh, what a cool title. Wow. Third Eye Spies. Okay. And, Lori, uh, give out websites for courses again. Yes, it's intuitivespecialists.com. And we have a free four-part introduction to practical remote viewing. On the, on the website. So we'd love to have you do that. We also have two books. I've written two books, how-to books on remote viewing that you can also find on the website. Uh, just so many, so many great free things on the website. I encourage all your listeners to, to jump in there and I- explore all the wonders there. And my books and my, my shows books. are all available um, online too on streaming platforms and Amazon and all that kind of stuff. Okay, we've got about a minute left. Uh, this is a topic that obviously we can't get into, but the next time we all gather together, which we're going to do probably a month or so, I want to talk about psychic archaeology because I'm really Ooh. interested in I've got a story. <laughs> extraterrestrial archaeology. And well, you need Stephen Schwartz to be on that show because his life work is psychic archaeology. Super. Well, then obviously you can help put him in touch with me. And by, I talked to Stephen years ago, but I probably lost his contact info. So if you can help. Hey, guys, I really want to thank you. My guests this morning were Russell Targ, one of the pioneers in the foundation at SRI of the science of remote viewing and associated hyperdimensional arcane sciences. Laurie Williams, who has a vast background in remote viewing and actually teaches classes, unless you uh, think you're totally untalented, I would recommend that you kind of take a look at uh, her website and see if you might want to sign up. And, of course, our own John Womack, uh, 
who from the age of five or six has been jaunting around the galaxy and other dimensions doing good and serving humankind. Tomorrow night, we're rescheduling part two of our Of Things to Come. We're going to have a litany of interesting people, our citizen historian, to talk about 2023, and who knows what else. So until tomorrow night, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.